He made his name co-writing and directing the British indie horror Kill List before cementing a reputation for the macabre with sightseers. If you don't pick up this excrement immediately, then I'm going to have to inform the National Trust. Report that to the National Trust, mate. One widespread critical acclaim for the hallucinatory historical thriller A Field in England. I think I have worked out what God is punishing us for. <clears throat> Everything. And has now taken on the considerable challenge of realising the dystopian visions of novelist J.G. Ballard in High Rise. How's the high life? Prone to fits of mania, narcissism and power failure. Ooh. I'm Edith Bowman and you're listening to the first episode of Soundtracking, a weekly podcast which will come out every Friday in which I speak to directors, actors, writers and musicians about the relationship between cinema and music. In the coming weeks, I'll be joined by the likes of David Ayer, John Favreau, Todd Solins and Richard Linklater. But I'm delighted to say my guest on our inaugural show is Ben Wheatley. A man fast developing a reputation as one of the most exciting filmmakers around. Indeed, it's just been announced that his next movie, Free Fire, will close the BFI London Film Festival later in the year, which is quite the honour. I caught up with him on the home entertainment release of High Rise, which stars Tom Hiddleston, Luke Evans, Sienna Miller and Elizabeth Moss as residents of a luxury 1970s tower block that descends into anarchy. The ones who are the real danger are the self-contained types like you. Perhaps you're right. Scored by world-renowned composer Clint Mansell, it also features a chilling cover of ABBA's SOS by Portishead, which represents the band's first new material for seven years. More on that later, but our chat began with Ben taking us on an odyssey through the weird and wonderful world of German electronica, which has developed into something of a passion of his. Let's start by asking you when music first came into the, the process of making the film. The beginning of, a, of the process of making a movie, I usually make a big playlist and there's usually a structure to it in terms of like a theme. On Sightseers, it had been the world of German kraut rock. You're not supposed to call it that, are you? But it, whatever, you know. And it was looking at this idea that this again, I think, is like BBC Four's fault, where I've been sold lots of documentaries about, you know, electronica and and how we invented the world in Britain, and then you know, saw another documentary was about kraut rock, and I realised that the basically all that was a kind of a lie, and that the Germans had invented all this music like ten years before, and then we'd regurgitated and claimed it as ours. It's disappointing. up Connie Plank and I started following Connie Plank's work who's the producer of a lot of this stuff and he's like the, the linchpin kind of German and you, you, once you start looking at Connie Plank's discography you discover all sorts of kind of music. And then I think I was told to listen to Noi by uh, Andy Stark, producer. 
and he kind of rolled his eyes as he said that, knowing I was a heathen and, and should have known about it, but it wasn't cool enough. I just said it wrong for ages. Noi. 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 Oh, God, which reminds me of a terrible thing that happened on Free Fire when I was working with Michael Smiley. There's a, there's a scene in the it's a new movie we've done and it, it, he has to push a paint can out through a doorway, and I was cueing it by saying can 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 like this and and I was and I was choking to myself because I got such an in-depth knowledge of German music. And I said why don't you say I'll say Neu instead, and he went what, are you taking the piss out of my accent? I'm like no I'm not I really am not I'm really not Michael I'm really sorry because this joke's not funny at all and it only making me laugh and it's about German bands and oh my god so that was a really awful awful moment <laughs> But anyway, so I started thinking about it with, with sightseers in terms of the music we'd have listened to uh, when we were kids around that period, uh, the, the, those characters would have listened to as kids, but then where that music had come from. I thought, I, I'm going to put pop music on here, but I don't want it to feel like a gag. Tainted love. Certainly with Tainted Love, it was a track you know, I really like, and I've loved it since I was a teenager. I remember being in my mate's house dancing to Tainted Love and laughing and just thinking it was fantastic. And then, you know, there's a line where they could be seen as campy, ironic choices, but for me they're not. They're brilliant pop and, it, and, and I enjoy that without reservation or without kind of feeling above it. I liked it as I, when I was little, when it came out, and I like it now. And then going into High Rise, it was this thing of, oh, you know, if you've got all the money in the world, then you can put Elton John over stuff and Rolling Stones, and you can have all those 70s tracks. But at the end of the day, they've kind of been spanked, all those tracks in, in other movies, and they, they don't mean what they mean anymore. And I wanted something that felt period, but it was underneath and science fiction. Because High Rise is kind of a science fiction film, but it's complicated because it's a period movie that's a science fiction film at the same time. For all its inconveniences, Lang was satisfied with life in the high-rise, ready to move forward and explore life. How exactly? He had not yet decided. So the charts are really weird when you look at them in the 70s. Just look at 75, 76, she's full of shawaddy-waddy, and you go, yeah, of course, it was all Bowie, wasn't it? And you look at it, he's in at number... 60 star man or something like that and, you know so it, I, I kind of reality has been slightly warped about what was actually being listened to and I just thought you know in this block even though you'd have had to be quite a 70s hipster to be listening to lots of can you might have done you know and I like that idea that those characters might have listened to that music because they were just interested and they were engaged The 
Portishead track is phenomenal. I think it's my favourite thing I've heard in such a long time. How did that come about? I can't even remember, you know. I, I kind of emailed Jeff and he was straight back. Oh, he'd said he'd seen the field and said he liked it, so at least there was something there. I was doing Doctor Who, I think, and I went over from Cardiff to Bristol and then had a few drinks with him, and that was just, you know, you have to have that first meeting to get over that fanish kind of <laughs> thing. Yeah, it was brilliant, you know, and I was just chuffed. It's weird, I think there's a thing where you kind of imagine that these guys, because they've been in the culture for so long and in, in media for so long, that they're something else, they're some other people, or, or older always. And Jeff's like the same age as I am, so that was, it was to see the human being behind that. And they're so cultish and, and mysterious, Porter said usually, so it's kind of, that, was, that was good. <laughs> And then we just got on really well and then it came from there and I think Amy had written Amy Jump who wrote High Rise had written in that there would be different versions of SOS into the script so there's two big rolls of the dice it's like will Portishead agree to do it will Abba agree to do it Without being dull and having no anecdote here, it was it went fine. We held our breath as we sent it off to ABBA and they went, yeah, because they, they knew who Porter's Head were and they knew Ballard and they were excited about it. But they very rarely let anyone cover their stuff. Why was Clint the right man for this particular job? Well, Clint and Portishead as well. It was interesting that I kind of ran into them through Twitter. And, you know, uh, I think 10 years ago, well, certainly trying to contact Portishead would have been a major operation from a standing start. But Jeff Barrow's like all over Twitter, so he was, and so he follows me. If he follows me on Twitter, it's like, oh, that's really interesting. And if I follow him back, then I can email him, and so I did. Same with Clint, and Clint had been doing this thing of doing interviews saying what he liked and what he was interested in and saying he liked Kill List and stuff like that. So I was, thought, well, if he's talking about it, then I'm, maybe I can talk to him. But I never would have done if I hadn't seen that because I just didn't even think I was in the same arena as him. You know, I didn't see there was a connection at all. You know, all these movies he was doing with Aronofsky are so massive. But he was really approachable. So I kind of emailed him and said, you know, I'm a big fan and... Again, you know, apologise for listening to all his stuff on Spotify. But also said that I did rebuy it all, which I, I did do. And what kind of guidance did you give him? Or did you, in fact? You know, always the problem with soundtrack and is the conversation between the filmmaker and the composer. It's like, what is that language? And there's no set language for it. So every relationship with a composer is a different one. And you have to work out how you communicate that stuff. And it, and it very quickly can devolve into mid-90s music journalism if you're not careful, you know, because there is no way of saying it if you're not a musician. It's probably even worse if the filmmaker is a musician because then you imprint all your terrible ideas onto the composer. So with Clint, it was just back and forth and he'd do little demos and then we'd chat about them um, and I'd lay them up against the film and, and, and back and forth like that quite gently. But, you know, we could have those conversations quite openly and it was very easy.
It's a thing I kind of learned from working with graphic designers earlier on in my career when I was doing like advertising is that the more that you are specific, the less you get from people in a way. So you get what you put in, you'll just get the same back. You'd have to be stupid to do this, but there is no point going to a composer and then sitting there humming tunes to them and telling them more like this or even using temp music is quite dangerous. But it was, you know, I mean, Clint does a very good job of making you feel like you're involved in it. You know, when I was when I sit with him doing it, I felt I was kind of integral into the composing. But obviously I wasn't at all, but I kind of, it, it felt good for me. because in terms of like a soundscape for a film you know there's this throbbing almost there's obviously soundtrack score in there but there's also just noise and sound at seed level was that the intention well that one there's two things going well a few things going on in the field one is that Jim Williams's score is meant to be the first half is music that they can play themselves because there's no recorded music obviously there's you have to be able to make your own entertainment so that was all done on instruments and in meters of that period and then it turns into kind of Morricone via psychedelic rock. So it kind of does this journey of, as they do in the field, you know, they go from being normal to taking drugs and, and being reordered and readjusted. And also something that had struck us when we were making the film was that it's a proto-cowboy movie anyway, you know, because those floppy hats and the pistols are all the things that straight after that time period, they all buggered off to America anyway, and then, then continued that look. So that was part of it, and then the other half of it is kind of a lot of rumbling cymbals and stuff, which is more Martin Pavey's end of the street, who's the sound designer on the films, on all the films I've made. So there was a marriage there, and that had started in Kill This, where score crosses over into sound design and back. And on the vinyl release for Field in England, one half of it's Jim's score, and the other half of it is um, Pavey's 
rumbling. <laughs> Which I've got a vanity credit on just so that I can have released a record. But um, I, I, don't, I don't pick up any of the payments on that because that would be a step too far. That Chernobyl track, whenever I hear it now, my head goes into imagining the film. I think it's maybe just because of that shot, it being so long and being so horrific. <laughs> I think that's the, that's the scar in your head that's causing those, <laughs> that, the linkage of those two things. But I'd had nightmares as a kid which were like that, but they were just like moving towards a tree trunk just really, really slowly. And the idea that a nightmare could be slow and just texture rather than clowns jumping out of wardrobes with... The, daggers and stuff you know yeah. it doesn't have to be like that it can be it can be something quite mundane that really upsets you you can't escape the fame whitehead then i shall become it i shall consume all the ill fortune which you are set to unleash i shall chew up all the selfish scheming and ill intentions that men like you force upon men like me interesting I heard a thing that Clint said where he doesn't think he feels how did the process work with Jim in terms of coming up with the scores for those films for me the kind of perfect way of working that, we, that I got with Jim it's getting that balance of not having any temp music and temp music's a real killer you know when you don't have the score you fill your film with music from other movies to, to make the film feel quicker usually or to give it some kind of emotion because you know something's going to go in there, but you don't know what it is. And, it, and it's kind of spread in like polyfiller over the film. And, and, but at the same time, you get the greatest music, film music that's ever been written. So that's good. And it makes your film look better. But at the same time, it's written to a rhythm of a film that isn't your film. So it's completely wrong at the same time. And then when the poor composer comes along and has to replace it, the first thing they replace it with is demos. And the demos are done by them in there, often on a synth, with all the, the kind of classical music parts or instruments all done on, as, as, as quite cheap synth. Or, or they're done on a completely different instrument, like a guitar or something. And so they, they feel really thin. They really have to fight with the stuff to replace it. And, and you can, as much as you try hard as a filmmaker not to fall in love with the temp, you can really do that and really cause trouble. But we'd been through all these journeys, me and Jim, when we were doing the first few films, for better or for worse. Actually, Kill List worked out quite well because it was Rob Hill and I, when we were editing it, had done this thing where we just slowed down uh, Morton Feldman music down to like 1%. So the whole film had a temp on it, but it wasn't really temp, it was just a noise. Mm -hmm. And then when Jim lifted that out and replaced it with a different, more nuanced score, it felt better rather than worse, you know. 
by the time we come to Field in England, he'd composed quite advanced demos, and so there was never any temp that went onto that film. Just the demos went on, and and then they just got better. So that was really lovely, and that, and that was much more organic kind of conversation that we could have backwards and forwards. And what he'd do for me is like write a quite a complex piece of music, but give me the stems, which are like the kind of um, in in. Uh, tracks of the different instruments so then I could do a kind of rudimentary remix on it so I go I really like the drums well let's just loop the drums out and we can have that go in and then I could bring in your instruments one by one and bash them back out again and he could frame accurately where I wanted the music to change and then he'd recompose that stuff back to that so that was a really good way of working by the end there. mentioned Kill This Day as well and there's a Joan Armour trading track. It's really emotional. You know, when do you come to the point of deciding that's the track that I want to use for that particular scene? Yeah, it's always like the moral dilemma at this point as I hear these questions go, do I <laughs> do I say what actually happened? I was very sad last night You came by I was so glad Oh, sadness covered up Smile I kept for you what happened was I had Jackson Brown late for the sky on there and Andy's like, no, sir, we're going to clear this. I mean, this is going to cost a fortune. What are you doing? I'm like, that's great. Other words had all been spoken And somehow the feeling still wasn't right And still we They wouldn't even talk to us. I mean, this is like our first film where we were actually trying to go to record companies and clear music and it was just, it was hopeless. So then we were in trouble because we needed a track to fit that. And so basically threw ourselves at the mercy of a publishing company and said, is there anything you got that's like it, that's that period but has that emotion in it and we listened to a lot of stuff and then that Joan Armour trading track came out and we are like, oh, wow. It could have been better if you had held my hand and smiled at me. Oh, question. You know, I usually choose all the music in the movies and I, and I take a pride in that and I can't hide from the fact that I didn't, <laughs> I didn't choose that one, uh, but it was great. I mean, we've been more adventurous. I think it started with Sightseers. It was a note from Edgar Wright because he was an exec producer on it. On the first edit, was much more covered in noi and it was a bit more dour, the whole film. And so he said, don't be afraid of pop. So that's where Tainted Love had come from after that. Because I come from low budget, I'm quite tight and it's expensive once you start going, Tainted Love, and we're going to go, Frankie goes to Hollywood, but it's big bucks, you know, and I didn't want to spend it. Since someone enabled me, <laughs> I could start spending, it was fine. Keep the vampires from your door. 
working with bands as well. You've done a couple of, well, you've done this thing recently with Radiohead. Mm. Can you talk about that, or is that just kind of what it is? Yeah, well, I, I got an email from Johnny Greenwood. Again, we've been chatting through Twitter. I've been chatting to him for a year or so about odds and sods, because I'm obviously a massive fan of A, of Radiohead, and B, of his scores. Is he someone you'd like to work with in the future? Totally, yeah. Yeah, and they just got this email out of the blue going, oh, do you want to do it? And, you know, it's like, do you want to? That was it. <laughs> I had me at that. And then I read the rest of them, oh, 30 seconds. Oh, well, I mean. <laughs> Which was really tough. I mean, they were tough, those things. I'd, I'd looked at the others as well. They kept going, oh, do you want to be the first one out? I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure I do. <laughs> See what the other people did first. <laughs> It's tricky pop promos. I think it's a young person's game, you know. <laughs> and I've come to it quite late in life. So I'm always grateful, you know, for the work. But, uh, <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I do enjoy it. I mean, it is nerve-wracking because it's kind of, it's halfway between an ad and, and art. So the, the bands are really lovely about it, but it's still you're trying to do something for the band. So there's that kind of tension in there. Listen, Free Fire, I'm dead excited about, and you've got to be incredibly happy with the response you've had from High Rise. I'm really happy with what happened with High Rise, and I think that I know it's a difficult one. And uh, when I did the tour up and down the country and doing the Q&As and seeing everybody at those and seeing full cinemas at the beginning of the film and at the end, <laughs> which is always good, you know, so I really enjoyed that. So, yeah, that was brilliant. Love it, chat to you, Ben. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. Familiar to fans of BBC Radio 4, that was Ronald Binge's Sailing By, which features in Ben Wheatley's latest film, High Rise. My huge thanks to Ben for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, you can find a full track list for this show by heading to edithbowman.com. There's also a dedicated soundtracking Spotify account where I've curated a playlist featuring the tracks you've just heard in the order they appear. I'm Edith Bowman and you've been listening to our first ever Soundtracking, our weekly celebration of music and film. And you can hear new episodes every Friday. For our second episode, I'll be joined by David Ayer, the man behind Training Day and Fury, whose latest project is a big budget adaptation of the cult comic Suicide Squad. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. <laughs>